Welcome to this edition of On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State University, and we're glad to have you with us this week right here on KTRL 90.5 FM, streaming on tarletonradio.com. Uh, as I mentioned every week, you can also listen to us after the show on SoundCloud, uh, where this uh, episode will be uploaded, but also uh, you can download us where you get your podcasts. So that's On Politics with Eric Morrow. And uh, as we uh, start this show, we can certainly say uh, that the the past two weeks, especially this past week, uh, have been uh uh, not short at all on news about politics. And so that always gives us new material and things to address uh, related to uh, the show. But I have to say, you know, as we were approaching the January 5th uh, election and the January 6th certification of the electoral vote, uh, I was thinking, well, maybe we're going to see a, a cessation here uh, of, of major uh, news. Uh, and of course, said that and thought that many times over the last four years. And of course, that's not been the case. There's always been something happening, something going on. The news cycle has just continued to churn uh, throughout that time. And, and certainly we saw it this last week and going into this uh, next week as well. Uh, as uh, President Trump ends his term of office, uh, and whether that will be uh, by uh, time expiring and uh, Joe Biden taking office on January 20th, or as we ended the week, the rumors, or not necessarily rumors, but just all the discussion going on around a a second impeachment process. Uh, So uh, it'll be interesting to see how all this develops in just a short period of time. But I want to go back today and look at some of the related issues uh, that uh, we saw in the news this past week and really focus on uh, really three different aspects of it. One was, or one is, uh, this this dispute or the, the arguments uh, about the electoral votes and the certification process. And just a little bit of background. I know this has been uh, in the national news. It has been addressed in, in a variety of ways. But I think now that 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 certification has taken place, that Congress has met, they have uh, confirmed Joe Biden as president with the count of the electoral votes, uh, that we need to, to, to look at that because this, uh, the, all of the commotion that this caused brings certain attention to it, but the possibilities of this happening again in the future uh, because uh, it, it brought some new elements into the election process uh, that we've not seen in the modern era. I mean, some elements that are are, are very political, very partisan, uh, very agenda-driven in terms of tapping into that energy and that that size of the support, uh, the base of support that President Trump uh, has had, and what we saw in this last election with the uh, uh, just the unprecedented turnout in terms of the the, the numbers and the the record-setting votes that were received by both candidates, uh, and, and then also how that connects with some of the events of the last few days and what we've seen happen uh, with the Capitol and during this process and and, and those that were really uh, involved in all of this and trying to dispute the electoral count. Uh, and then I want to wrap up the show today by looking back to a thesis that I've made uh, several times throughout the Trump presidency and that is some of the cha- of these challenges have been created by the fact that President Trump and those around him uh, struggle with their understanding of federalism and how that actually works or doesn't work in this country. And that is that that uh, relationship between the federal government and the states, not only how that's defined constitutionally, uh, but in the modern era, how that has played out, especially in the Republican Party, where there has been in the past an emphasis on states' rights. And I think in, in, in both on a number of fronts, if we look at the pandemic, if we look at the election, and we look at President Trump's response to the election in trying to dispute it, trying to bring lawsuits that would overturn or change uh, some of the turnout, the the, the numbers, uh, that, that this all uh, feeds into that thesis in, in looking at uh, the challenges that have been created for him and by him uh, because of the, sh- the way we structure government. 
uh, and, and the way we structure it here uh, does hold a check on pa- power to a certain degree. And I think what we saw this past week and what we see moving forward, uh, no matter where this ends in impeachment or when, when as he leaves office, but certainly a shift in, in some of the in the Republican Party uh, kind of moving back to uh, a more moderate position here, uh, not not so in moderate in compared to what we've seen over the last four years in that a lot of it has been support for Trump, for President Trump, support for his decisions, what he's doing, or at least a lack of criticism when his decisions went against uh, the have central principles uh, of the Republican Party and and of of those that make up the party and their focus on economic conservatism, uh, on on the role of government, on the role of government power, and on this issue, I think, of federalism, where states' rights is a very prominent feature. And some of the things that we've seen in all of this, in the response of the Trump administration, and like I said, in the pandemic, uh, in, in the election and in the post-election challenges, has has really lacked uh, an awareness of that of the really the strength of that within our system. This, at least, it, and what I mean here by strength is not so much the power of one over the other, but just how how this has has developed over time in our country, where you do have states that have authority uh, in some of these processes that connect with federal government. And here we're talking about elections. We're talking about the conducting of elections, the certification of elections, the choosing of electors for the electoral college. I mean, all of this uh, is is in the middle of that. And and again, I think that lack of understanding there. And then as I'll I'll get to, I think in the the end of the show, but just something I want to leave you to think about at this point, one of the things that doesn't get attention in all of this is the interaction between members of Congress and the political leadership of their respective states. Okay, so so think about this for a moment. And this goes on in various levels in various ways, depending on party affiliation and so on. But this got to a point here with the certification of the of the election, with the vote, with the um, uh, affirming of the counting of the electoral college votes, and it got to a point where you, especially after the uh, uh, the 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 riot and the 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 occupation of the Capitol building, where you had a, a shift in the rhetoric and and in just in the positions of many Republicans uh, in the Senate and in the House, even though the debate went on into the wee hours of the morning and trying to address the disputes that were brought up about the Electoral College vote. But with this happening, uh, you you saw that that some of these uh, members of Congress kind of moved back, not just, and I don't think it was just because of the what happened in the Capitol building. I think some of this was because of those conversations that are most likely happening between states and their representation in Congress and the concerns about you know, questioning what was going on at the state level and, and the challenges of, of governors and other officials at the state level navigating this going forward. When you had their are members of Congress that were front and center and kind of disputing what they had resolved. Okay, the fact that all all the states had confirmed the election outcome, all the states had done their processes, all the states had 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 reviewed for fraud, had reviewed for issues and problems, and so we were well beyond uh, what happened back in the 1870s that called for a commission here to look for. Uh, to try to resolve the election. We were well beyond that already, uh, and even though some were calling for that, because the states had done their part. They had done their constitutional duty to uh, review these elections, to conduct the elections, and then to affirm the outcome, and then to forward that outcome under the Constitution to Congress. And so, again, I think what what happened here is that while you had some that were disputing this, and I I don't think that if you look at someone like uh, Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz or some of the lead senators that were in the midst of this, that, that they were questioning the outcome as much as they were really playing the political game. They were trying to position themselves 
in relationship to the supporters of Donald Trump, seeing this, this, you know, millions of people that voted for him, seeing the millions of dollars that, that he has raised post-election and carrying on this narrative about disputing the election, to tap into that and to look at their political aspirations and, and hope to be the torchbearer uh, after Donald Trump or to get his endorsement. And we'll talk about that here in a moment as well, because that dynamic ha- may have changed uh, in the events of the last few days. So I want to go back here first in, in giving you that preview and talk, first of all, about the electoral disputes here and, and really what was the basis for moving this dispute process uh, to another level where you had uh, some senators that were calling for a commission uh, to look at this uh, under the Electoral Code Act, uh, an act that was passed in 1877 when there was concerns about the outcome of the election. Uh, And you had a number of states, Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, uh, who uh, that that had election returns and were concerned about uh, electoral fraud, uh, and 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 Oregon as well, where there was uh, there were other issues there as well, where you had multiple slates of elect electors that were sent forward to Congress, and all of this in the mix of post Reconstruction or, or really near the end of Reconstruction that will become a factor in this, and determining who would be uh, the uh, the president of the United States. Uh, so when you look back at that and you see the the this this. Uh, act that was passed at that point in time, the act which set up a commission of five senators, five uh, members of the House, and five members of the Supreme Court uh, to resolve this, uh, it was meant to kind of look at this and say, okay, what actually happened? Uh, What are the disputes here? And how do we solve those disputes? Of course, at the same time, you have the uh, the politicking going on, not only of who's on that commission, knowing that whoever controlled House or Senate, they would that those five would be chosen by that party. Uh, and then who was on the Supreme Court and, and what were they might like likely to land on this. But it was also the 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 um, uh, negotiations about ending Reconstruction. Uh, which really led Democrats to support this and eventually to support uh, Rutherford B. Hayes for president because of that promise to remove Union troops from the South and to end Reconstruction. Uh, so what what was happening here prior to the certification, prior to the states submitting their ballot counts and so on, uh, there, there were disputes that were going on, and they were going on within individual states that needed to be reviewed and a decision needed to be made because the decision about counting the electors from those states would determine the outcome uh, of the election. Uh, this is why some, and I think Lindsey Graham was one of the ones as well that spoke from the Senate floor, that we don't want to go back and look at this. We don't want to go. This is not the, the point, the starting point to resolve the disputes that were there today, because it's a, it's, it was a completely different uh, scenario, a completely different set of circumstances whereby the states had already done their work. There was no dispute on, on, at any state level regarding the outcome of the election. Okay, there was no dispute about choosing the electors. There was no dispute about, uh, as, as we saw with the numerous court cases that were, were thrown out about fraud, about other issues that would have changed the outcome in those states. And so by the time it gets to Congress and it gets to January 6th, where they are counting those electoral votes, uh, this process of disputing it was 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 certainly very political. And that's not to say it wasn't in 1877. It certainly was. But in this time as well, it was political, not so much in the sense of trying to overturn the election, but in the sense of the positioning of political leaders, of senators and, and members of the House, uh, in order to align themselves with that that support base for President Trump. And of course, if you're looking ahead, if you have presidential aspirations, you want to tie into that. You want to tie into the energy and the resources and the and the millions upon millions of votes that that even though Donald Trump lost the election, a significant amount of support uh, that from all across the nation that makes, a, if you had that same support, makes that election within within reach. 
that the possibility of winning if you're able to to tap into that support. Now, before I get to that, though, in talking about these electoral college disputes, I, I do want to say that this needs to be resolved. I mean, I, I think that that on the federal level and in terms of the 12th Amendment, because if we look at the 12th Amendment of the Constitution uh, and where it says in here that the electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for president and vice president, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the same state. So all of that happened. Uh, They shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of government of the United States directed to the president of the Senate, which is the vice president. And if you watched any of this, you saw Mike Pence sitting in that seat uh, of the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be president, if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And it goes on if it said, you know, other things. But it says, uh, but in choosing the president, the vote shall be taken by states, the representation from each state having one vote. This is if there's not uh, a majority. Uh, the, it says the person having the greatest number of votes as vice president shall be the vice president if such number be a majority of the whole number of electors appointed. And if no person have a majority, then from the two highest numbers on the list, the Senate shall choose the vice president. Okay, again, there, these are a lot of details that address the electoral process and then what the Senate does. The problem in 1877 was uh, that there was no process. Uh, in in order to handle disputes uh, about electors. And that is how this process came into place uh, where the Electoral Count Act explains, and, and thus this is the rules under which Congress was operating now, objections to individual state returns must be made in writing by at least one member, each of the Senate and House of Representatives. If an objection meets these requirements, the joint session recesses and the two houses separate and debate the question in their respective chambers for a maximum of two hours. So there was a time limit. Now, if you tuned in on that on January 6th and you saw all of this happening, they had adjourned. So they had started uh, counting the electoral votes. When they came to Arizona, uh, there was a dispute. Uh, with that dispute, they uh, then adjourned because they had that support from both senators and members of the House of Representatives who had raised objections about the vote from Arizona, and they set a two-hour time limit. It was during that first debate that the Capitol was occupied by uh, these rioters, and uh, thus that was suspended, and once all that was under control later in the day, they came back together finished the debate on Arizona and then moved forward with the other states. What it says here is that after they finished that debate on a particular state, they reassemble in joint session, which they did a number of times, and announce the results of their respective votes. An objection to a state's electoral vote must be approved by both houses. So we we didn't see that. We could have seen where a, a, a chamber approved, where another one did not approve, and thus it would not have held. But we didn't we didn't see it go this far, and so th- this um, this process is what we saw play out, and we have not seen that play out. Uh, it happened back in two thousand five with uh, President Bush's election, but of course when they adjourned, there was very limited debate. They come back, and and there was not support to uh, reject the votes uh, of at that time of, of a particular state. The question here is, is, is this really a viable long-term solution uh, to uh, resolve this kind of conflict? Because if we think about where we are politically in the country now, the polarization we have, uh, of course, we always know this changes and, and, and where we are today, we could not have predicted in looking back uh, four or five years ago. Uh, but there are concerns that this may come into play again and there are concerns that this really needs to be addressed and it needs to be uh, fixed in some way. Um, so the concern, there, there are a number of, of suggestions about this uh, where some say that, uh, no, it, it, it does uh, offer a way forward. It does offer a way to resolve this. Uh, but 
others say that it's flawed. I mean, that the fact that um, it, it's its ability to bind a future Congress to procedural rules. I mean, that that that's in question. And so that could be uh, uh, a concern as well, since it was focused on resolving that one issue in 1877. Um there, there, there's also other parts of this that 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 are unknown uh, that could be where you know where is the burden of proof? I mean, where, where which in this case uh, you don't really have anything that was presented substantially to question uh, the electoral outcomes of these states, uh, and and it also kind of questions the role that the states have in ensuring the integrity of their elections. So. I wanted to bring that back to our attention because it was an interesting process that, that we've not seen uh, and, and the country has not experienced and seen uh, since the late 1800s. Uh, but it's something that could come into play even more so in the future if we have this kind of uh, a partisanship and, and, and political gaming, I would say, that attempts to take a situation like this and to maximize the political outcomes out of it, even knowing that that you might not be successful in terms of the process, but either in relation to constituents or, as I've said in this case, uh, and this is kind of what I turn to now, is that I think that the actions of Senator Hawley from Missouri, Senator Cruz from Texas and others uh, was uh, uh, about their political positioning related to uh, presidential aspirations or whatever other outcomes could happen with aligning themselves uh, with that base of President Trump. And so we want to pause there for just a minute and kind of look at this, because I think there's some concerns here that I want to raise uh, about this, especially after the events of January 6th and what happened with the occupation of the Capitol and, and the reasons why I think this is very, very politically motivated. Uh, one one point on that uh, is that even after the occupation of the Capitol building and the the attention that 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 now is receiving, resignations of law enforcement uh, officials or or security officials related to the Capitol, uh, now five deaths uh, related uh, to the rioting and the occupation of the Capitol, and just the attention it's getting around the world, uh, even after that. Uh, these senators uh, and, and some members in the House came back and still held their ground on disputing the election. Uh, and thus it taking until I think it was almost four in the morning Eastern time before all of this was finalized and all of the electoral votes uh, were, were opened and counted. Uh, I think that still is the, that political maneuvering with this, which, I, again, it's, it's a game. It, they're, they're taking risks in doing this in order to achieve the outcome uh, that they want. Uh, but again, as I've said already on the show today, that they see that tremendous support of President Trump, or at least they the, the support that was there. I mean, I think some of it is, is still there. A lot of it's still there. Uh, but now it's it's kind of tarnished or tainted in some way. Uh, but they, they still, their focus in going into all of this was very much focused on that base, on the, as I said, the energy, the resources, uh, leading up to a possible 2024 strategy. But I think that began to unravel this week. Now, I don't like to make predictions or anything that's part of it for political scientists and, and looking at some of these things is that we that you make, um, uh, you develop theories and you test those theories using empirical data. And so uh, we're not, we really don't have the kind of empirical data to kind of go back and look at this and and and, and go in that way. And, and we will with hindsight, but I think some of this is starting to unravel. And I, I do for a number of reasons, think that this is very challenging uh, for those that have aligned themselves with president Trump going forward. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, the uh, senators uh, and others, those that are kind of in the front of this are not Donald Trump. Uh, and I, the, the way that they can connect with that base uh, in the way that Donald Trump has, to me, appears very superficial. 
Uh, it just does not have the depth and substance of not just personality and uh, rhetoric and demeanor and, and and all those other things that Donald Trump has brought into the presidency and has made him uh, very successful among such a large group of people. Uh, I don't see that in these two senators at this point. And I think that while they may be trying to be the heir apparent, maybe trying to to plan for their political fortunes and take these risks, uh, that's one factor that is just very challenging uh, because in order to have that kind of status that Trump didn't have uh, before is you have to be elected president. that, re- that that status he has in relationship to the Republican Party and to Republican leaders, uh, and th- that came with him being elected. Uh, it, it was not there before. And so I think that's one of the challenges that we see with them. The second part of this that I see is that what's happening with Trump's legacy now, with the calls for impeachment, Of course, you had the 25th Amendment that was being tossed about uh, to see if uh, the vice president and others uh, would um, uh, engage with that discussion and possibly uh, debate that and then decide to uh, remove Trump from office. Uh, That doesn't look like it's going to happen. I mean, Vice President Mike Pence has come out. It seems in opposition to that. You've had several cabinet members resign. my question now is, what's that legacy and, and what it will be its impact on 2024? I mean, we've got two years to a midterm. We've got four years to the next election. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of things that are going to happen. But you also right now have this kind of searing memory uh, uh, and, and experience of what happened on January 6th in the Capitol building and the role that the president had in terms of that rally that was happening and the things that he said and the, the ongoing connections that are being made that, that link him. And, and, and not just by Democrats, you see Republicans doing this, you see administrative officials doing this, who've come out and made statements. I'm not sure that this legacy is one that appears to, 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 to going to end well, that, that a presidential hopeful for 2024 would want to tie themselves to. The the last point uh, I see here before we we take a break is the Republican Party and their reaction to the president. The Republican Party as a whole in which those presidential hopefuls for 2024 uh, have to really tie themselves to. And and what is going to happen in that party? Uh, Are they going to move away uh, from this this kind of uh, this group that's on on the uh, edges there that have aligned themselves quite uh, significantly with President Trump, even in the midst of all of this uh, end game, as we would say it, um, when we've had election losses and seeing what happened on January 5th, when the the party has had those losses in that uh, Georgia was lost uh, with the two senators being elected and now Congress is in the hands of Democrats for the next two years, what, where do they... Uh, reflect and and retool and and then and I think there will be a call in the Republican Party to shift back to some of those areas in terms of economic conservatism and and states' rights is in the mix here as well uh, in order to to realign uh, for the next election. I mean, I, I look back at, at the Tea Party impact in the '90s. It did have an impact. It did change. Uh, Congress, it changed politics, it it changed governance. But after that, there was then a reaction uh, or really a shift in the Republican Party uh, that that moved things back more toward the center, uh, more moderated, uh, that that was especially after 9-11. I mean, we saw something significant happen there that required government in which government was then used and expanded in order to focus on national and homeland security. Um, But I think that we may be in a similar time here, that that, that there's going to be a retooling uh, and and an attempt to move back into uh, the mainstream and get away from some of this, any kind of association. And this is not to say that, that, uh, uh, the majority of members in the Republican Party and in, in Congress are aligned with these groups at all. But to, but the association with these kind of extremist groups and their various views to, to really distance themselves uh, from that uh, because of what happened 
uh, not just in these last uh, uh, since the election, but what happened on January 6th, where you saw a lot more unity uh, among Congress and, and members of Congress. And, and I would say uh, hope across the nation in that this was going too far. This was taking things too far not just in the actions of what the people did in occupying the Capitol, but even the president himself and others around him. I mean, if you go back and watch that, those speeches by uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Donald Trump's son and the president himself and Ken Paxton and others uh, and see how uh, that rhetoric, uh, the, the tone and nature of it just went too far in, in it, with a group that had elements within it, okay? not, not everyone that was there, but elements within it that were willing to take that literally and to then go to the Capitol and to do some of the things uh, that they did, to occupy it in the way they did and basically kind of desecrate what we consider uh, a, a national shrine to our democratic system and to the rule of law. Uh, so I think these are some things that are going to be in the mix uh, as we move forward. A lot of it will just see where uh, these senators land in 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 the Republican Party and in their status in the party uh, as we move forward into the new administration, uh, and to see what what uh, whether this is their their time has passed or if they're able to to pull out of this, or if we see other people that come to the forefront that really start taking the lead in the party itself. Uh, all of this, you know, coming here in this last week, how and, and really, and this, what I've tried to do here is emphasize the significance of these events and what has happened going forward. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll go back to my thesis on President Trump being, and I put this in quotes, the victim of federalism. We'll be right back. Politics can be confusing, but on politics with Eric Morrow has your back. Follow the show on Facebook. Search On Politics with Eric Morrow to stay up to date with the show and all the sources to follow right along. Texas is a Texas-based history podcast from historian Dr. T. Lindsey Baker. Find a new episode every Thursday morning wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to On Politics. I'm Dr. Eric Morrow at Tarleton State, and we're glad you're joining with us today. I uh, want to go back and just, uh, if you missed the first part of the show today, to, to encourage you to go back and listen to that on SoundCloud after the show or download as a podcast where uh, we address these challenges with the Electoral College disputes and uh, how that fed into some of the different things this past week, and especially those that were kind of in the middle of it, uh, and what their political uh, fortunes may be uh, in the future. Uh, following on that, and as we see Trump the president uh, should say the Trump administration coming to end, President Trump leaving office. I want to go back to a thesis that I've promoted along the way, and that's something that I will continue to give a, maybe attention to and just in terms of research, but focusing on the impact here. And, and when I've said this to some people before, they've kind of looked at me, especially those that understand the concept of federalism. And, and, and I've said that President Trump is, quote, the victim end quote, of federalism. And of course, they look at me and they go, wow, what the victim? How could he be a victim of federalism? I'm trying to put this in uh, from, from his perspective, okay? is that, that he's the victim because he, he, he didn't understand it. He doesn't understand it. He's not engaged with it at a level uh, to understand the, the, the challenge of politics within that kind of system. And while he has been politically successful on a number of fronts in a number of ways, uh, this is the one that has really, I think, spelled doom this last year for his presidency. Uh, and, and so I'm looking at it in, in three different areas. So I added another area to this because I've come back to it, like I said, over this past year. And so I want to review those areas, but I also want to talk about why I've, I've even added more to affirming this specific thesis. And that is the, the, the very first time I addressed this was at, 
at the initial stages or time of the pandemic. And one of the challenges related to the pandemic that we have seen, and we continue to see this on a daily basis, uh, we see it even though there's a vaccine, we see it in the distribution of the vaccine, we see it at the, the challenges of healthcare systems across the country, and that is that there has never been uh, adequate coordination between the federal government and the states. This was very apparent early on, where the approach of the president was more or less to let the states do their thing, uh, to, uh, to, to be somewhat reluctant or hesitant initially to offer federal assistance, uh, especially to support infrastructure. Okay, so the assistance came, you know, by way of developing vaccines. Fine. Those go to pharmaceutical companies. They have infrastructure. They dedicate all their resources and the resources that they receive from government to producing a vaccine. And so we saw this and and just unprecedented time and energy that was put into this in getting a vaccine that is now available. But what we see is the distribution of it. And again, we see healthcare systems states, okay, because this is being done by government, okay, this is not being done by, by private organizations. The, the distribution of this is being coordinated by federal government with state governments. What we see is a failure on both levels, and that failure uh, is, is in getting the, the, the millions and millions of doses uh, out where they need to be. And so this has been a significant challenge along the way. And, and I think we saw this early on with the tensions that were there. You had Republican governors that were, were uh, supporting President Trump. But uh, again, the question was about resources and timing. Early on, some of those states were not impacted as, as some other states because we saw our states with high population centers, uh, New York, California, and so on, that had Democratic leadership. Uh, so there, there was the political element in this. But we also saw that the focus was on kind of a free-for-all of states in getting supplies, medical equipment, masks. I mean, it, it was not, it was not a, an environment and a plan was not created where the federal government comes together with the states and says, how do we do this? How do we do it effectively? How do we meet the needs where they are? And how do we sustain this over time? Okay, so that that was very much a challenge early on, and it seemed like the the federal government, at least as in its totality, not you know there were certain departments and areas that were engaged with this, but it just really seemed like that the the effort and the resources were not being put behind this, led primarily by President Trump, who really could have, uh, I think, and this would have made a difference, and it may have made a difference in the in the election, is if he could have coordinated this. And, and, and had a successful coordination of both the response where everyone's on the same page and we're trying to get through this national crisis together, uh, rather than either to politicize it or to uh, be uh, a kind of obstructionist in terms of dedicating the resources of government uh, to combat this. And so I think we see it even more now. See, we, we see the outcome of this because Again, the whole idea of Operation Warp Speed was get, getting the vaccine out there and getting it out there to as many people as possible, as quickly as possible. And yet we're seeing struggles all across the country with that. Both, I, I don't just put this on the part of the federal government. I think it's state governments are challenged by this as well. I think they have, they have a role in, in, a, in a, uh, some of the issues lie there. But I think the coordination of it could have been much better. And here we are in a in a federalist system where, yes, states do have responsibilities. They do have authority, spheres of authority over certain things. But this is not the kind of crisis that becomes a free for all that every state does its own thing. And when, when it's a, the virus knows no borders, the virus uh, knows no um, uh politics in terms of Democrat or Republican or independent or whatever it may be, this is a national crisis. It's a world crisis, but in terms of our country and its well-being, its security, the health of the people, the common good, it is a, a, a crisis that needs that highest level of coordination between federal and state government. So that, that was my first case. The second one that, I, that brought this thesis back in uh, is the election. 
So when we look at the election and we look at the success that both President Trump and President-elect Biden had in this, I mean, in terms of the turnout and the number of votes, uh, I, I think it, it th- that election and then the process following, again, is this emphasis on uh, federalism. And in a federalist system, the way ours is established, the states have significant a significant role and responsibility in conducting their elections, in determining how those elections will be carried out. Yes, there are federal statutes and there's laws in place that that relate to the Constitution as a basis in terms of fair and free elections. But in terms of the implementation of it, it's up to each and every individual state. And so the states, uh, and I think this was this election was was interesting in in this regard, and that you that that we'll see how this impacts just like two thousand did on elections that followed. But but twenty sixteen there were issues uh, there were issues of of or concerns at least about inter- election interference, a shift back to having paper records, even though you had electronic voting, having paper records, having a backup system separating systems. I've talked about this on the show before, where you have one system where you cast your ballot, another system that counts it. They're not tied into the internet. They're not, uh, uh, they can't be compromised in that way. Uh, So here we had statements coming out of Homeland Security and others that this was the most secure election uh, that that at least they affirmed in U.S. history. Um, Here we had states doing their jobs states taking their responsibility seriously. And I think we saw this in Arizona and Georgia and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, following not what they think should happen, but following the election outcome and the rules of their state, the rules of their state in order to facilitate the election. And so if those rules as set by their legislature said, this is how you handle mail-in balloting, this is how you do this, this is how you uh, recount this, this is how you do that, they were following the rules of their states uh, that were in place at the time of that election. Okay, And this is the system by which we've been doing this for several centuries. It's not just... Uh, the fact that that you change the rules as you go along, you you conduct the election, and if there are concerns, then that can be addressed by the powers that be in a state legislature post-election in preparation for the next. Um, and, and, and really the issues that came to the forefront, a lot of it, especially in Pennsylvania, because we talked about this again on an earlier show and looking at how the state legislature had addressed mail-in balloting in relationship to a straight ticket voting, and had agreement between Democrats and Republicans to do mail voting a particular way. And so that was in in force in this election. But it was something that was decided well before the pandemic, uh, well before that impact of of mail voting being uh, uh, much more prominent and available to people uh, uh, to uh, to vote in this election because of the pandemic. So we could see adjustments to that. And I think we will. I think we'll see a number of states that will revisit voting by mail and they will uh, try to determine a way forward uh, that addresses uh, a number of concerns that have been raised about that and about access to it. But that aside, the the focus here is is on the role that states have in this process. And I think, again, what we saw in the days after the election, in the weeks after the election, and even up to this certification, throughout the certification process, that there was a, a, a lack of both respect and awareness uh, of this. Now, I'm not, again, as I've said on the show, I'm not questioning the right that the president and his uh, um, administration has in disputing outcomes and taking those to court, especially if they have evidence, which, again, I think was a challenge in all of this to see where, where is the evidence of widespread fraud or uh, mishandling of this that would uh, impact the outcome of the election. Uh, but but I think when, what happened here is that, that, again, it was being a victim of federalism. It's a, it's a victim of the system, again, victim as he would see it, that leaves this in the hands of the states. And when we come down to the end of this process, and this is why I want to focus in on this week, what we see is the affirmation under the Constitution by Congress of a process that has been handled by the states, 
under the power that they have under the Constitution and under the laws of their state. And so having all of the states certify their electors and to send them to Congress, uh, this is this is right in the middle of that that relationship of federalism where you have powers that are delegated to the states and they have fulfilled those powers. They have, they have carried that out. They have fulfilled those responsibilities under the constitution. They have done their part. And thus you have governors and secretary of states and so forth who are, who in all confidence in the outcome of what has happened and in respect of a democratic system by which the election and its outcome determines who is in power. They sent these forward to say, we have done our jobs. We have done what we are supposed to do. This is the outcome of the election. And and so what we saw, I think, in this past week with the ongoing attempts, even this last attempts of, well, the vice president can refuse not to do this and so on, was just a, a neglect of understanding this and understanding that absolute power does not reside in the federal government. Absolute power does not reside in the president who can then say, oh, do this and do that. Uh, and even in the midst of a political game, which there's so many elements of that, that of, of, of politics that played into this, uh, there are still rules uh, and there's, there's a process to follow. And, Again, what was shown and on display here was a lack of understanding that. And, and, and I, on my part, I mean, I see that with those who, who sided with the president here at the last minute to try to raise disputes about all of this and everything. You know, I'm very much concerned about their understanding of this. I, I think it moves us in a direction that would not be unheard of in human history, where you have a few that in order to maintain or to achieve power are doing whatever means is necessary, uh, regardless of the Constitution, regardless of uh, what's happening and what, what our system is and what it has affirmed. And, and I think this is what, what was held in check here at the last minute. I think that was held in check. I don't know that it would have been it would, would have been successful, but it was held in check because you had the majority of the members of Congress, Senate, Senate, House of Representatives, Republicans and Democrats that said, this is done. It's done. It's finished. This is the outcome. The states have done their part. The governors, the lieutenant governors, the secretary of states, the, the, those that conducted the elections have done their part and have followed the, the process and the order of the Constitution. Now we do our part to complete this process. And so I think we saw that on display this week. I think we saw, on the other hand, the ugliness of what happens when people just neglect that altogether. And instead of coming together in civility and coming together and knowing that, okay, we 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 fought another day in terms of, of elections, we don't like the outcome of this election, then we've got to work even harder to change that outcome in the next election. I think that's that's we saw the ugliness of when you let the rule of law put it to the side and say, okay, anything goes here. And, and we're going to do as they were incited to do, uh, use force. We're going to fight. We're going to literally fight in order to uh, try to get the outcome uh, that we want. So I want to to, to wrap this up uh, with one other aspect of this as well. And I mentioned this early in the show. And, and that was the, the fact that I think, and I, and I don't know this for sure, and I may have some that have a lot more experience in this realm than I do, who may come back and say, well, uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I, I think here, as this is all winding down uh, to the end of the Trump uh, term, uh, I think the level of communication between state officials and the representatives in the Senate and the House from those states uh, has to have been quite significant, uh, especially post-election, but now getting into this process, into this transition, and with the challenges that are going on with the pandemic. Now the, the jobs report was not good this last week, so the economy uh, may be faltering a little bit uh, with all of this happening. Uh, and then with what we saw in the, in the Capitol building on January 6th and all the aftermath of that, uh, I have to think that there's been a high level of communication where governors and legislators at the state level are concerned about the, the long-term impact of all of this on what they do. 
and, and some of them going into election cycles this next year. Uh, some of them are going to have to deal with some of this. Uh, and the concern about upholding the integrity of the role that the states each individually have in all of this process and in conducting their elections and not wanting to see that 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 power erode, uh, which we could go back to the 1870s, like we where we started with the uh, electoral code and talk about reconstruction and talk about the challenges that states had uh, coming out of reconstruction or during that period and following uh, and what that led to uh, in, in the, uh, in the South and in other places. And, and of course, eventually addressed with civil rights voting rights act, which again was having to use federal authority to put some limits on what states could do or not do. I don't think we want to go back in that direction. And I don't think states want to do that as, as well. And I think we came to a point here, where the members of Congress said, okay, enough's enough. This, this is done. This is over. Let's move forward. Uh, and let's kind of get back to understanding what this balance of power is, not just in Congress, not just between Congress and the executive, but also between the federal government and state governments. So I leave you with that today. Uh, we will have uh, more uh, to come in the weeks ahead as we now look to an inauguration and we start to transition into uh, the Biden administration. So I encourage you to join me each week here. That's On Politics with Eric Morrow here at 12 noon on Sundays on KTRL 90. Point five FM, uh, streaming on tarletonradio.com. We have a Facebook page as well where I post related articles and links to the show. So please plan to be back and join us as we go into a new year, a new administration, and possibly new dynamics uh, in politics. podcast with production from me taylor welch and me carissa cole find more great shows by searching tarleton radio network wherever you get your podcasts